Hello, I'm Daniel Weinman and this is Brave New Brands, the podcast where we get to know the stories behind our most authentic consumer products. Today we have Adam Lowry from Ripple Foods, a company that's creating delicious plant-based alternative for dairy products. We had an amazing conversation about how to create change in the world by doing business. I hope you enjoy it. Let's check it out. Hi, Daniel. Welcome. Thank you. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I'm honored to have you here today. I'm sure uh, you're going to have many, many founders uh, by sharing your, your story. Well, let's hope we can be a help. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Amazing, man. So, man, I really want to understand the history uh, behind your purpose for creating Ripple. How did it start? Yeah, I mean, the purpose behind Ripple actually goes to a long time before Ripple, actually. So I am a chemical engineer by education, but I started my career as a climate scientist and did so because I was really interested in, in creating action against climate change. Um, this was in the 90s. Uh, and my role specifically, I was actually a computer programmer and I was building the climate models, um, the precursors to climate models that are used today. And really interested in the science um, and wanted to see that translate itself into public policy. And uh, obviously it did not in the 90s. I worked on things like the Kyoto Protocol of 97. Uh, and unfortunately in the US, uh, we're still very much lagging from a public policy standpoint on, on climate change. So it's, it's sad to say that that the sound science doesn't still doesn't really lead to the, to the type of public policy change I'd like to see. Uh, but after doing that for about four or five years, I, I, I started to get frustrated with, with that aspect and, and decided, hey, maybe business as the largest and most powerful institution on the planet would be a better way to try to create the type of consumer and cultural change that might spur people more towards healthier and uh, more environmentally friendly uh, outcomes through their shopping behaviors. And, and that led me to start my first company, which is a cleaning products company called Method. Uh, this company has started in my apartment with a, one of my roommates uh, selling door to door. Uh, and over about 15 years, we built it into the largest green cleaning plant brand in the world. Um, that company was acquired twice. Uh, and as a part of that process, I kind of came to a crossroads where I thought, do I want to continue trying to create impact through business with Method, which is already scaled to a couple hundred million dollars in, in, in sales and it's a big business uh, and, and growing nicely, or do I want to try to create what could be, you know, another so-called method, um, a, a business yeah. that, that really integrated social and environmental outcomes in an interesting way and, and did some amazing stuff. And, you know, I obviously decided on option B, um, and so the purpose of Ripple very much so is to drive social and environmental outcomes through, you know, something as mundane as a non-dairy milk. Um, but the approach that we take to that is just that we've designed a product that's inherently a lot better on water, waste, greenhouse gas emissions. But most importantly, um, it's a lot better on taste and nutrition. And uh, what we try to do is we try to give the credit for what we call the ripple effect, which is that cumulative effect of all of our uh, the consumers that, that buy and enjoy ripple, we try to give that credit to them. And so, for example, you see 
right on the homepage of our website at yeah. ripplefoods.com. You see a, a live counter of all of the greenhouse gas emissions that have been saved and water that's been saved and plastic that's been saved as a result of all these people that uh, thankfully have, have decided that Ripple's a good choice for them. Amazing, man. So uh, there's a lot of history behind it and I love it. I, I myself in my career had a similar trajectory. Of course, I didn't go into the climate space, but working with social uh, enterprises and trying to create around great social impact through social initiatives and ended up in business because I thought it would be a better impact also and more, more sustainable and et cetera, et cetera. So I love to see that this is your story in a way, of course, you've worked on actually worked on regulations and trying to bring this, this to the world sure. and ended up creating two, two companies that are having a lot of impact. Do you see that the impact is bigger? The, was the choice of going into business a better one than trying to change policy in your, in your view right now? Uh, you know, listen, I think, I think you need all sectors of society, right? You need, yep. the, you need the public sector, you need civil society, you need government, uh, you need the business sector, the private sector. Um, we need all of these things if we're going to create the, the kind of future we want to live in. Uh, what one of my big realizations was that politics follows business, uh, not the other way around, uh, particularly in the United States, you know, and you can follow money and, you know, we can get into that whole discussion, but, you know, issues of giving people healthcare and fighting the climate are pretty obvious issues that yeah. that government should address. The only reason they don't in the United States is, you know, oil care, oil companies and healthcare companies are lining the pockets of politicians. And I hate to be that blunt about it, but it just is that blunt. And so yeah. part of my philosophy is that, well, what we need to do is we need the renewable energy sector to start to take over the fossil fuel sector, right? Yeah. We need uh, in the food sector, the cleaning product sector, businesses like the ones that I have started, to try to supplant some more of the incumbents there. And as you do that, and as most importantly, people, consumers of energy and cleaning products and food, patronize those types of businesses, that, that balance of power, so to speak, will shift. And then you'll actually start to see the public policy change. It's, of course, way more complicated than that. And there are many, many really talented people working on public policy, working in the NGO sector, working in government, um, but what I've found is that for me, what I like to do and what I'm good at, uh, it, it, it seems to fit better in building organizations and businesses that try to integrate social and environmental outcomes. And, you know, and I enjoy doing that. So that's, that's where I'm going to try to make my mark. Perfect. Yeah, I, I, I was uh, thinking there's the strat strategic part where you say, okay, where can I have the most impact? And there's the personal part, where do I feel the most alive? Where do I feel that I can contribute more, et cetera, et cetera. And ideally you integrate them, them both. And I think that's, that's how you sound. That's the goal. Least. That's the goal. Yeah. And it's, you know, what's been actually really great to see is using business to create social and environmental change was a radical idea in 1999 uh, when we built our first business around it. And today pretty much every business has that goal. Uh, yeah. And that's fantastic. That credit belongs to sort of everyone in society kind of realizing that the business sector has a role to play. Um, it's a really important one. Uh, and it's just, 
it's just a great time to be in business because business itself is trying to figure out how to redefine success from a world where it used to just be about making money for shareholders, which were generally already rich people, um, yeah. to trying to create more benefits that accrue more broadly to a broader set of people in society. And I think that's a really important uh, shift that's occurred. Yeah. And when, when you uh, decided to, you wanted to create a second company, why did you choose dairy? Uh, maybe, maybe why did you choose food? And then why did you choose dairy specifically? Yeah, quite simply, it was impact. So there are a lot of social and environmental impacts in the cleaning product sector. But when you look at food, that's where a lot of the impacts are. So just, just to give a couple of numbers to that, about 30% of the world's carbon footprint is food. And about a quarter of that is actually dairy. Uh, and a lot of people know that dairy cows, you know, is a large methane component, which is greenhouse gas and it's a lot of water and crops that are used in that process. Um, and that's one of the things that creates a very large footprint for something like dairy. So to help people or help accelerate the move that that's already occurring of people moving more towards plant-based diets, at least in the developing world, um, is a really good way to actually lower the carbon footprint of humanity. And when, you know, to put that in perspective, you know, if you, if you put 30% and 25% together, what you, what you figure out is about 8% of humanity's total carbon footprint is dairy, which is just completely amazing. Um, and so if you think about that in the context of one and a half degrees C or two degrees C holding climate change to those levels of Paris agreement, um, the, it, you can actually get a long way there by accelerating these changes that are already occurring towards more plant-based diets. Definitely, man. And one thing uh, what I, I find cool about Ripple is that you can, it's the Ripple effect is that the homepage, the, the very first thing you see when, when you find your website. So you are stating the benefit for the whole ecosystem, right? For the environment, et cetera, et cetera. But Ripple has a fun feel to the brand and to the products. So it's not like sacrifice. It's actually, I'm consuming something that I love. Uh, hopefully that's the experience of your customers, right? And I'm having fun while doing it. It's hopefully as comfortable as milk is for uh, people who, who has have milk as a comfort food like I do. Yeah, I mean, that tone is, that tone's very intentional with the brand. Uh, the Method brand was very much that way, light and bright and didn't, didn't look like your typical sort of green cleaning product. With Ripple, what we're really trying to do is, as I mentioned before, give the credit to the people that buy Ripple. It's, it's not about us and what we're doing as a company because without the people that consume Ripple, our impact would be nothing. So, They deserve the credit for that. So we're just mirroring that and letting them know, you know, how they've contributed, which is, which is great. One interesting thing is how important is it for you that the dairy substitutes are fun and a light experience and not something like you do it for oh, the environment? Well, yeah, you? that's... In your consumer experience. That's great. And it actually reminds me of what sort of I was, I was going to talk, talk about with relative to the fun. But one of the big realizations that we had going into the Ripple brand and going into the food space is that pretty much every food brand gives you rules you are supposed to live by. Mm -hmm. uh, and they kind of give you parameters, right? So it's, it's eat carbs and don't eat that or eat this and don't eat that. Uh, and of course, it, it, then it changes, right? What used to be good for you is now bad for you. And it, it's really exhausting and it's hard yes. to keep track of. And so part of why we wanted to have 
just a more positive tone with Ripple is that, I mean, we're talking about milk here, right? It's not the most uh, central thing in your life. I mean, if your life is going well, you're probably not thinking about milk that much. Uh, and so what we wanted to do was just to create a product where if you use it, you didn't really have to worry you know, about the rules of food. And so we almost wanted from a brand standpoint to kind of turn that on its head so that like we're the, the antidote to food rules. It's just like, here's one choice you can make. It's good for your health. It's good for the world, you know, and move on with your life. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're not going to pretend that the Ripple brand is something that's central to the identity of all of our consumers. You know, if we do our job right, it's not, but it should be something that they enjoy and doesn't make them, doesn't burden them with more stuff, yeah. you know, as a lot of food brands, I think. Do. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting because that was the, the first thing I felt when I saw your brand. So that's a, that's a great, uh, at least in my experience, you achieved your goal. So well, I'm glad, I'm glad that it's noticeable. Uh, it's also really important in the context of things like the ripple effect counter that we have on our website, which is when a lot of that comes out of my experience as a climate scientist and knowing how to kind of do something like that in a real, in, in, it's a capability that we have as a business. But, it, but as you well know, environmental reporting is very dry and boring yeah. when all it is is the numbers, right? And so I think you've got to surround it with, you know, with purpose and meaning and a point of view as a brand uh, in order to dimensionalize those numbers a little bit, because otherwise it's just you know, even a greenhouse gas, and it's a very abstract number. Uh, switching gears a bit, um, around the direct-to-consumer route, do you sell 100% direct-to-consumer? Do you sell on, on retail also? What's, what's the strategy? Um, the, the overwhelming operation? majority of our business is retail, actually. Um, oh, and we do it. have D2C. But that's, that's a, mostly a function of where these products are sold, to be honest. The overwhelming majority of milk products are sold in grocery stores. Yes. Uh, there is a, an interesting growing online channel, but it's just consumer behavior isn't really there yet for most people. Uh, so, you know, that's developing, that shift is happening, but, you know, we reflect very much the way this category is shopped, which is primarily retail. Perfect. Perfect. And do you see a trend in your numbers, like increase in DTC sales or, or is it more stable right now? Sure. The growth rates in both DTC as well as e-tail, right? So Amazon being like an e-tailer are, you know, the growth rates are much higher than they are in the retail sector. But the retail sales for these categories are actually growing really well too. I mean, retail sales are up double digits year over year. And that's just because more and more people are going into the plant-based world. But yes, that shift is definitely occurring. But for whatever reason, shopper behavior, uh, it's still a relatively small portion of the overall category sales. Um, but you know, I expect that to change just as it has in many other categories that are more leading than, uh, than non-dairy milk. You know, one thing that big brands have uh, difficulty with uh, transitioning towards direct-to-consumer is that they have relationships with traditional retailers that are so strong, they are so dependent on the, the retailers that it's hard for them to, to transition towards direct-to-consumer without cutting some the ties they, they, they have and the, the relationships they have. Do you think that's even present with, with a more niche brand like Ripple before you get to the mainstream? I think it's important to make sure just from a brand perspective that the way you go to market is consistent. 
and where you can get into trouble uh, with channel conflict that it, that's like what you're describing yes, exactly is where your D2C channel or your e-tail channel undercuts the price of what's available at retail. You know, fortunately now there are ways of going to market both e-tail and D2C where you can, where you can control that. I mean, D2C is entirely up to the business, right? So, yes. Yes. you know, you, you can set that price uh, because it's a retail price with e-tail uh, that's dominated by Amazon, of course, but there are ways of working with Amazon where you can make sure that your price stays consistent with your retail price. Uh, that's what we do on Ripple Foods uh, and, and it works well. And as long as you're not actively cannibalizing your retail channel in order to drive things like your e-tail or your D2C, then you know, then I, I think retailers understand that it's important to have what, you know, they refer to as an omni-channel strategy. Yes, that's wonderful because one of the goals of this show is to help uh, people that are thinking to start e-commerce operations or, or direct-to-consumer operations and to think about the, their business in a sense. And what I hear from you is that it's not about direct-to-consumer or e-tail or retail. It's uh, the business as a whole. And much more from what we've been talking uh, earlier is the purpose behind the business as a whole. So what I'm hearing is it doesn't matter if you do it through retail uh, or direct-to-consumer or whatever, you're gonna, if you're helping the climate change happen and in a sustainable way, you're gonna be happy with it. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think there's probably a couple other pieces of context that are important. You know, with both cleaning products and with milk products, what you have is products that are very large and heavy and therefore expensive to ship and are pretty darn cheap. You know, they're a couple of dollars, right? So yeah. the, the mix of D2C and e-tail within businesses like Ripple and Method is inherently going to be a lot less, right? And it's yeah. going to be a lot less just because some of the just sort of physical challenges of an online, cha of an online channel. I mean, to ship a cleaning product from my house to the neighbor next door costs more than the product costs to buy, right? Yes. So, yes. you know, I, I think that's important to say because, you know, with the objective of this, uh, this show being about encouraging people in that space, um, what applies to Ripple and Method very much won't apply to a business that has a different type of product um, and different types of channels. And that's important to recognize. Um, and actually, in fact, um, so I haven't started two businesses. I've started three businesses, well, more than three businesses, but um, uh, a business that I started last year, uh, you may or may not know about called Sugar Break is in the, uh, it's a brand called Sugar Break, sugarbreak.com. It's in the sugar reduction and diabetes management space. And here's, a, I won't go into a lot of detail on, on it other than to say that the products uh, are much smaller and lighter. And yeah. the price points are higher. And so that's a business where the D2C and the e-tail is already, um, you know, a really big proportion of the business. So, you know, I, I do think to your point and your question, it's important to look at the business overall um, and then understand what type of channel mix is right for 
the consumer, the brand, the category, the product that uh, that you're going after. And and also, if uh, I don't know if you're into the channel, like you really want to do DTC to know the constraints, right? You won't be able to do it do it 100% if the price of logistics is too high. Mm -hmm. Is that is that right? And and I also think it's it's important that DTC, regardless of its size or percentage of the overall business uh, has an enormous value from a bunch of different components. I mean, there's a data component that you just don't get when you're working through retail or ETL customers, yes. right? So you have a direct yes. relationship, of course. So there's a lot of learning there. Can be a great opportunity to test out new ideas, new prototypes, product concepts in a really quick and cost-effective way. So, you know, even when in a business like a Ripple or like a method where the DTC channel has some impediments to it just from a sort of logistics cost and, and uh, standpoint, it's still really valuable um, to develop those businesses even in those places. Yeah, I, I see what what you're saying as as a lab, as to be able to learn faster and better, even if you're like 99% uh, traditional retail having the DTC operation can make, make your life easier because you're going to have shorter iteration cycles and more direct access to, to the, the actual consumers, right? Now, what's the role of software technology in... Now that we're talking about your the, the three company, companies you mentioned so far, can be in neither of them. We don't need to, to remain 100% on Ripple. It's more about the, the founder experience here. What's the importance of software in, in all this experiences? Yeah. So to kind of couch it the right way, I mean, we're in the three businesses that, that I've started in the consumer space, we, we haven't built any of our own software products. We obviously use awesome. software products that we source from other vendors. You know, what those, the most important ones from a sales and marketing standpoint for us are the ones that allow us to understand insights in the marketplace and then allow us to get in front of the right types of consumers. So, you know, things that allow us to target uh, the, the consumer segments that each of these brands are really going after, um, those are things that are high value to the business. Things that help us understand purchase behaviors and, and just the data of purchasing that we can then use to expand our marketing funnel, get more people into the, into the franchise. Um, are really the places where I would say we probably invest the most from a software standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And what about internal workflows like production capacity, design? Uh... Yeah. So from an ERP standpoint, for example, just running the business, uh, consumer businesses have very complex su supply chains. Yes. Uh, and also in the non-D2Cs world, you're not working directly with consumers, right? You're working with retailers that have you know, retailers might, a national retailer might have 20 uh, distribution centers around the country. And so there is a very important component of uh, ERP enterprise resource planning about making sure you have the right product in the right places that you can get them to the right uh, distribution centers within the lead times of when your customers order. Um, that is, can be very complex. Um, there's also a a forecasting and demand planning uh, aspect yep. to that. So if you layer on consumer promotions, price promotions, displays, anything that will sort of change your day-to-day -day sales velocity, 
uh, and then you multiply that times lots of different customers and 30,000 stores, um, all of a sudden that type of analytical software becomes really important to doing things like uh, making sure inventory is as low as it can be to preserve cash, making sure your inventory is in the right place, you know, and so forth. So uh, there's an awful lot, and that's not unique, honestly, to Ripple or, or Method that any consumer yeah. business is going to be going to be investing heavily in those types of of tools because I mean you got to have them to run a business like this and you know these days. Yeah, and where where did you start when you were just uh, starting Ripple Foods? Did you start with the product, like creating the product? Did you start with the channels? And did you start with both in parallel? What 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 was the the sequence there? Yeah, with the product, uh, the Ripple's really based around a technology as we kind of opened with, which was to make the purest plant protein on earth. Um, and the reason that's important, by the way, is that protein is inherently tasteless. So if it's pure, uh, plant protein isn't gonna taste like the plant it came from. Um, doesn't need to taste like soy or pea or whatever. And that's what we do. And so since we're able to do that, we can put a lot of protein in a plant-based milk or protein shake and it tastes great. Doesn't, doesn't taste all planty. So um, for us, it was really starting with that plant, extra, uh, plant protein extraction and purification process and making sure that we could really get an amazing product with a lot of protein in it. And then once you get that, I mean, I'm a big believer in the consumer space that if you get the product right, then the rest yeah. of the business gets a lot more easy, a lot easier. And, and it's a much easier way to compete when you have fewer resources, if you invest in a better product, uh, because most big CBG companies are very marketing oriented and they're really good at marketing. Like they're good at getting you to think about their brand when you go to the store versus an upstart brand. And you're not really going to outcompete that uh, from yeah. a marketing and scale and dollar standpoint. So better to try to outcompete them on the innovation and the product experience. Perfect. So uh, you started with the research and development behind the products and later on mm -hmm. created. Did you create the first line of products? Do you create the first one product uh, and brought it to market? What was the, the strategy after you had the protein? Yeah, yeah. There's sort of two levels. There's the protein level I already mentioned, and then you got to turn that protein into a milk product. So it was both of those kind of concurrently. And what we worked on initially was just a milk alternative. So just an alternative to dairy milk that had the same or better nutrition. But that quickly evolved as we then turned our attention to taking it to market, uh, to understanding some of the category dynamics Uh, where there are different segmentations of the category about different flavors and uh, types of milk um, that we segmented as well. And so that one sort of central product turned into three or four. Help us understand that the, the time elapsed here. How, how long yeah, was, it was the, the protein development phase? Yeah, I mean, we went from the drawing board to market in about 14 months. And that includes yeah. all of the protein, the development of the product and selling it in and getting it on shelf of which there's quite a bit of lead time. So yeah. you know, most people would consider that to be really fast. Um, yes. That's part of one of the advantages you have when you're two people in a room um, is you can move really quickly and, and you need to, right? You need to be, be able to move quickly. If, if you don't have scale, you better have speed. Yeah, and, and that, that's a great segue to the, the part I'm, I'm going to ask you about. You mentioned two people in a room. It's you 
in a co-founder. Tell, tell us the story of, of the two people in a room. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this, I've, this has been the case both with Method and with Ripple Foods, uh, different person in the room other than uh, I was there, but <laughs> the co-founders were different. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, on, on the Method business, it was really about, uh, I, I, it, actually on both businesses, it's really about two people working together to have different perspectives um, to, to try to come up with a product that is more innovative than what is out there on the market. And of course, what that means in cleaning products and what that means in milk are wildly different things, uh, but the concept's the same. And it's about using the skill, experience, perspective, brain power of people that come from a really different perspectives to try to create something better than, than one could create on one's own. I know you, when you're starting uh, with two people, you all have to wear many hats, but if you can describe what was your role and your co-founder's roles, just so, so we can we can understand the how mm -hmm. how do we need to to start with people that are different from us or similar to us, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess what's interesting about contrasting method and ripple is I was kind of on opposite sides of that pairing mm -hmm. um, in each case. So with the method story, I was sort of the technical resource at the table, having a degree in chemical engineering, being able to actually formulate and develop the product itself, um, yes. do all the product design, packaging, development, that, that whole thing. Uh, where my co-founder, Eric, uh, at Method, was working on the brand concept, uh, a lot of the go-to-market strategy in terms of how you try to work with retailers to, to do that, and then ultimately, ultimately kind of the marketing behind it. With Ripple Foods, uh, my co-founder was the one that was really working on that protein purification, created that, that protein purification process. I was still really heavily involved in the product development and sort of determining where we would apply it and kind of what that product, how it needed to be relative, how it needed to be really differentiated from the other products in the market, you know, the soy milks and the almond milks. Uh, but, you know, my primary responsibility there was determining the go-to-market strategy and the brand and all the stuff that actually my other co-founder had done on the previous business. So, um, you know, that was fun. It's, it's, uh, you're right, you wear many different hats and I think you adjust based on uh, the skill sets that you have at the table to try to create the best possible outcome. Do you have a favorite role? Like, do, do you prefer working on the, the technical aspect or more this business role? I mean, the reality is I'm not that technical. Uh, I've got an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering. Uh, I, I guess I am skilled at being able to understand very technical things and help them work through the process, but I'm not good at, at creating those things myself. Maybe method was the anomaly there because, you know, the technology yeah. happened to be one that, you know, I could do. Yeah. It was, was inside your capabilities, but right now, uh, from from what I heard uh, so far, you're better positioned to, to, to use all your, your skills yeah to use all of my faculties right and and i enjoy that more to be honest um i guess the i was a software engineer at one point i mean that was more than two decades ago so i've long since forgotten all of that um 
But I guess that and the engineering background hopefully gives me an ability to, to be well-rounded uh, and to be able to work with lots of different types of people, which I think you need to do if you're going to create something really innovative. Yeah, and for, for both businesses, did you add the idea and then uh, went about finding a co-founder or was something that you created together? You know, it's, it's more, Initial, in my experience, a process. Yeah, it's more, in my view, a process that sort of evolves. Um, it starts, honestly, with just conversations and common interests. Um, and then sort of when it happens, things sort of build on top of each other until the, there's sort of an idea there that is big enough that, you know, you say, yeah, I want to put all of my effort behind that. Um, and so, yes, there's sort of usually an initial sort of kernel of an idea, um, but it usually doesn't go anywhere without a couple of different people coming together and adding to that idea. And, you know, that, I, I know that there are plenty of lone entrepreneurs out there that have, you know, just come up with a brilliant idea by themselves. Uh, I haven't. Um, it, that's just the way it's worked for me. Yeah, and I, and I think it is much, much more common, especially in successful uh, businesses to, to have collaboration in terms of uh, partners, not only a team, right? My current co-founder, the, the way you described like having conversations. Uh, my current co-founder, we, we got together, we were friends for, for a while, but we got together one day and he showed me a marketing theory that he was doing, uh, that was training on. And that theory explained to me, at least, why my previous business had failed. And, mm -hmm. and then I, it just clicked. Uh, we just started talking about this framework for building a business that's different from, from what I was used to, to operate on. And that connection led to us saying, we want to start something together, but we didn't know what. So it started with the relationship. And sometimes, of course, it started with the kernel of the idea, sometimes even more than a kernel. And then I was able to find people to collaborate with. But one thing that it's definitely true is I, I'm also a person that that needs the collaboration to create something. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always great to have different perspectives and different kind of thought processes on your ideas because it, it allows you to think about them in different ways. And often those people will bring things you never thought of and uh, it makes it better. Right. And at the end of the day, if you're, if what your goal is, is to create something better, it's, it's a good way to go. Um, as yeah. opposed to, you know, having a goal, uh, having an idea that you can claim ownership over. Yeah. Yeah. When you have a purpose that that's bigger than the company behind it, it's easier to collaborate also, right? Because you mm -hmm. know you you're not doing it for you or for the the shareholders necessarily. You're doing for in your case for the environment and for society as a whole, which I think every company is doing it for society as a whole, but it's not always so obvious to the founders. Were there any or many? episodes where you thought you wouldn't make it with Ripple? Well, uh, less so with Ripple, knock on wood. You know, we may, <laughs> it's not over yet. With Method, there were a bunch. Um, and some of them really early on, just getting access to the capital that we needed to actually get the business going. The earliest one was actually right around September 11th, 2001. We were trying to raise a small amount of money, about a million dollars to to keep the company going. We, we were actually in market already. We raised about $300,000 in 
essentially money we had borrowed from friends and family and ourselves, and we had spent it all. And we were, we were actually on credit hold with our vendors. We couldn't get any more product and we're trying to raise money. Um, September 11th happened, which is you know, a whole nother yeah. thing, but that just made the world more complicated. And uh, it was a very difficult time. And we, we had hundreds of thousands of dollars in payables. We had $16 in the bank and you know, we were on our last leg. <laughs> Somehow we managed to get that capital and, you know, but there are lots of other times that that happened. I mean, we, Eric and I wrote a book about our method experience called The Method Method. And it's, it's mostly about, you know, business culture and innovation. Uh, but we tell the story about, you know, we got a big break with Target uh, nationally and we did, we were doing a test and, you know, the product that we made was super innovative, but people didn't understand it and they were ripping it apart in the stores and there was dish soap drop dripping down over all of our products. And, you know, we were dry, literally driving around to stores for months, you know, cleaning up dish soap off of shelves and, you know, didn't think we'd make it through that. So, um, and, and one of the things I've learned from talking to a lot of other entrepreneurs is they all have a story like that, uh, yes. that, that nearly killed them, the business. And so, uh, yeah, there, there are a bunch of them. And, and I, guess, I guess the important thing is at the risk of being a little bit cliche, it's how you respond to that and work it through that um, yeah. you know, ultimately makes the difference. And you've just got to be, be hungrier and willing to work you know, as hard as it takes to kind of work through it. And sometimes even that's not enough, right? Businesses do fail. Um, yeah. but I guess, you know, we were lucky in this instance. Yeah. I was going to ask you about luck. Do you think you were lucky in the sense that you did all you could, but the, the challenge was bigger and required serendipity to happen? What's your take on luck in this kind of situation? Yeah. I mean, I think luck plays a role for sure. Um, and things like just timing and when you go into, you know, different places and different markets and that sort of thing. I do also believe that one makes their own luck. Um, not in a direct way, but in just sound decision-making and strategic decision-making throughout a business. You know, I've, I've got a, you know, a history in athletics and, and, and the same is true, I believe, in athletics, in sport. You know, you, you make your own luck on a lot of things. Um, and so I think that's a big component. But yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no question that you're rolling the dice a little bit and if the timing's right or, you know, something happens and, you know, I mean, look at, and this is probably a horrible example to bring up, but um, while there have been a lot of pain and obviously terrible things that have resulted from COVID, you know, look at a business like Zoom, right? Yes. yes. That's pure luck and really bad luck for most people, but, you know, it's working out great if you happen to be one of the businesses that, but, you know, they probably had Zoom, and I don't know, but Zoom probably had a hypothesis yes. that, you know, eventually this is going to be needed. They probably didn't foresee a pandemic, but they were in the right place at the right time with the right type of product, where if something like that did happen, then, you know, they sort of made that luck. So, Probably yeah, a longer I, answer than you wanted, but I think it plays no, a role. No, no. I think uh, you can also. <laughs> I want as long as we can, man. As as uh, as long as the, the the chat is good, it feels right. The the longer, the merrier. <laughs> One thing about Zoom is that they also most probably had the situations where they almost failed and they thought they they wouldn't make it. So it, it's like wouldn't be surprised. 
Most people, most businesses yeah. do. So it's like the actual job of the entrepreneur is to live through this kind of uh, uncertainty, right? Yeah. If you're com if you're not comfortable with uncertainty, entrepreneurship is not a good career path. One path that I always like to to explore is culture and team. First of all, how big is the is uh, Ripple's team right now? Uh, high 60s. High 60s. 67, 8, something like that. Yeah. And how do you um, how do you see the, the role of company culture and how do we approach it? Yeah, uh, this is, I think, a really, really important topic um, and really timely too, because what culture means in a business is really changing and difficult in, in light of the pandemic. But um, I mentioned briefly before that book that Eric and I wrote, my, co my method co-founder called The Method Method. And the method method was really a culture that we created around innovation in that business. And it was some of the comments I made earlier about being product focused rather than marketing focused, being speed oriented rather than scale oriented. Um, it, it, it was sharing a lot of the ways that we came to those conclusions and then built those as capabilities. Um, but a lot of that was born out of a necessity that, Uh, that uh, and, and a sort of an inflection point that a lot of entrepreneurs come to, which for method that happened right around 50 employees where you didn't necessarily, you know, kind of know everybody that well anymore, right? Just yes. by the sheer numbers. And, you know, there's a phrase in the book that I remember that we wrote that was, you know, we realized at one point that culture was our secret sauce, but nobody had the recipe. Yeah. And Perfect. that, so we had to kind of figure out the recipe and that ended up being the things like speed over scale and, you know, and, and, and some of the things that I just mentioned. Um, but what it was really centered around with, with method was this idea that you, at the end of the day, if you're going to compete against the likes of Procter and Gamble and Unilever and the, you know, these large, massive companies that are super good at what they do, You can't try to do what they're going to do with fewer resources and expect to win. You have to do something totally different. It's a little bit like jujitsu, right? You have to make the competitive landscape different from what they're good at. And for us, that was product innovation, sustainability, making it beautiful and countertop worthy in the method context. Ripple, we're trying to do something really similar. And we've done, we did all of that sort of work of figuring out the recipe upfront in Ripple because I didn't want to wake up and, you know, figure out nobody had the recipe. So we did it up front and it has evolved over time. It's a little different than method, but that's because a lot of the, the culture itself at Ripple is different. It's much more yeah. technologically focused than method was. Um, but we have that same sort of cultural infrastructure that we, that we reinforce. And, and that is the really important part, which is you've got to, culture is something you practice. Uh, and it's, yeah. and it is only meaningful if you practice and think about the word culture outside of the context of companies, you know, think about it in the context of a country or a region, right? The only reason it's real is because people practice it. There's traditions and norms and behaviors and all that kind of stuff. It's no different in a business. What you're trying to do is trying, but, but what's unique is you're bringing generally, you know, a culture, a lot of people have grown up with a certain culture and they're kind of used to it, right? With a business culture, 
it's, it's a little bit different because you have a very diverse group of people that come often from very different cultural backgrounds that you're trying to create a common language um, and a business culture around. But, and so you're really starting from scratch. And, that, and so that aspect of practicing and reinforcing um, is super important. Um, and for both of my businesses, what we've really tried to do is build it into how we get together every Monday morning to kind of talk about the business, the way that we do performance reviews, you know, how we talk to our customers, um, what we reward people for, and just in, every, in the everyday, all, it has to kind of percolate through every aspect of the business for it to be really real. What's amazing is when you do that right, um, just like culture in the non-business context, it takes on a life of, it, of its own yeah. and it starts to self-replicate. Um, and it's really amazing to see. Um, and, you know, Method definitely achieved that. Um, Ripple, uh, I'm, I'm hoping, is on its way to that. Um, Ripple's much younger than, than Method. And, yeah. You know, practice takes time. But it, what's, you know, the net result of it is an authentic place where you get the most out of people because you know, they feel comfortable and they know how to interact with other people in a, in a, in a shared experience. Yeah, and I love the metaphor with regional culture because on a region, as you, as you said, most people are native to that region. And then you have people that are coming from, from the outside. And part of the culture is how do you, to, to use a company term, like do you onboard these uh, yeah. foreigners to, into your culture? Yeah. And with business, we need to onboard almost everyone, right? Well, and it's an advantage to do so, actually. It's, it's you know, you're, you, to our conversation about collaboration before, the, the diversity of perspectives that get brought is a big determining factor of how innovative you end up, right? So you don't want... Yeah people that are only native to one certain type of business culture. You want like lots of different people, but that, that makes the defining of a business culture even that more complex. And do, and do you have, uh, for, for Ripple, did you have a chance to write down some kind of culture code or anything like that? Yeah, we, we have that. Um, everybody has them on, on cards that we give physically to people. I use a construct of sort of values, behaviors, and rituals, which is sort of the values are what we believe. The behaviors are how we act. The rituals are the things that sort of reinforce that, right? And we actually codify what those things are, um, And then we try to use that language as a way to, to reinforce the way we, you know, we, we do things. You know, at, at Method, we had a value, which was what would MacGyver do, which was all about the old TV <laughs> show and being resourceful, right? Um, at Ripple Foods, we've got, you know, <laughs> have fun and get shit done. And that's just about an attitude of like, let's strip away all of the kind of business jargon and just like get shit done. Um, and try to have a little bit of fun while we're doing it. Um, and those are things that, you know, are uniquely the way that we operate and they're, they're things that people of different backgrounds can kind of understand. We try to reinforce. And how often do you update those? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, the, the values shouldn't change much if you get them right. That's, you know, what we believe as a, as a, as a team. The behaviors can change and actually... Um, I've seen them change, you know, ideally you're not changing them like every year, 
but maybe one or two sort of evolve. Because what will happen is some of them will take on different meanings over time. And I, I probably the best example I have is from the MacGyver days at Method. There, there was a weird thing that ended up happening with MacGyver where people would sort of procrastinate and then do something at the last minute. And then we would kind of identify that as a MacGyver. And then we're like, hold on a second. That is not a MacGyver. That is not what this is about, right? It's about resourcefulness, not like yes. waiting to the last minute and pulling an all-nighter, right? And those are two different things. And so we sort of adjusted the behaviors a little bit. And we talked about it, right? And that's the way of getting people to say, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, like we shouldn't celebrate procrastination and doing it at the last moment. We should celebrate resourcefulness. And they're different. And so they do evolve. Um, but my experiences with the behaviors, you sort of, you have to try to practice them. And then you see what really is real and what is like, yeah, it's not quite right. And then you adjust. Um, and in both businesses, we have sort of a group of people that, that people rotate in and out of to kind of do a little bit of a tour of duty on culture, just as a part of the business. Like, you know, it's a culture crew that um, is spearheads this work to make sure that our culture reflects who we really are and that also we adjust it if we need to. Adam, I am your fan already. I, I really, well, thank you very really much. appreciate the, the work you're doing. Knowing your background coming from a climate scientist and then going to business. One thing that I know is that it shows in your business that you have this kind of you're a grounded person but by experience but i feel like you're feel very comfortable at your own skin and you know what you're bringing to the table so <laughs> part you. of that might be age but <laughs> but thank you i yeah. you know i appreciate that i appreciate that compliment you know i think a lot of that comes with the territory when you're you know when you're trying to do something that has a bigger broader purpose you know you you realize You're, you're one of many people that are trying to do something good. And, you know, what, what motivates me is to try to try to feel that good happening a little bit every day, yeah. you know? And so yeah. it's, it's much more about, you know, trying to get a little bit done. Thank you so much. Uh, I really My enjoyed pleasure. our conversation today. And I, I was That's able great. to learn a lot from, from your experience. And, and I know that people watching will, will learn too. So Thank you very much, man. It's my pleasure. I'm Daniel Weinman, and this was Brave New Brands. I hope you had a great, great time and were able to learn a lot during this conversation. Please follow me on YouTube, LinkedIn, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming service. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.